0: Hey, and Welcome to Full Proof Theology. My name is Joyce Davis and I am your host. I wanted to hop on and give a quick kind of overview of some things I've been reflecting on this week. You know, this week, as I'm recording this, was a major week for, I don't know what you want to call it, I mean, our country, international relations with uh, the pullout in Afghanistan and, and kind of the collapse of, of that society. And so, I've been thinking and chewing on and praying on some things all week, uh, sharing some things with some friends that I've been thinking about, sharing some things online I've been thinking about. And it, it, there was a interesting correlation because this past Sunday I preached a sermon on Exodus 17 where Israel fights uh, their enemies, the Amalekites. And so coming out of that sermon, I was already kind of geared up, ready to think about, gosh, what, what does it look like today to uh, – To do justice, walk humbly with God, to defend the oppressed, and so I had been kind of stewing on some thoughts regarding these issues uh, prior to this week, and then I see kind of the news break that things in Afghanistan are deteriorating, and it really, uh, really struck me. You know, I was, I was angry, sad, uh, and those those would be words putting it mildly when I talk about my emotions, but but those at least summarize it for you. Um, and some of the things I've been thinking about are imprecatory psalms. Now, imprecatory psalms, uh, those are psalms written with a certain tone about them. There's at least two major ones, and there's over a dozen that, that have kind of intonations. One of the famous kind of turns is actually in Psalm 139. That it starts beautifully where you knit me together in my mother's womb, those kind of things. And then at the very end, it talks about almost like justice and revenge. Um, and so I, I was encouraging Christians that we should be praying and using those in situations like Afghanistan, where we see uh, Christians who are uh, not just being threatened with death, but are being murdered, uh, martyred, you could say, uh, for their faith because they are Christians. And so, I was encouraging people to use those and pray uh, those psalms. Um, and and I think that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And I want to talk about why why I think that is, and and why I understand it, um, why I get why it makes people uncomfortable, why I still think it's important. And so what I want to do is look at Psalm 69. It actually, uh, in verse 22, um, kind of talks about this topic specifically with the enemies. So it says, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they're at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp become a desolation or be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him who you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Now the the obvious tension with passages like this, Just comes right up to the surface because when we read this we're not used to praying this way we're not used to thinking this way about people Uh, we're not used to really embracing these kind of psalms at all we don't we don't know what to do with them Uh, when we look at the ethics of jesus which i want to get to we look at a psalm like this and we get perplexed by its usefulness today and so some i got some pushback on on this and you know some some people were suggesting you know Why is this useful? Why is this good? Especially in light of Jesus' teaching and in other places. Um, What what we see in the New Testament is we see this psalm actually being used elsewhere. We see Jesus use imprecatory psalms, or at least referencing them. um, In John, John 15, we see Paul use Psalm 69 specifically. He uses it in Romans 11. And so these psalms are not off-limits for Christians to use. Uh, It Then becomes a question of how do we use them? Um, and that gets into two topics one and both of them i don't think i'll cover but just kind of acknowledging where these questions lead us is uh, the new testament's use of the old testament in fact if it's really interesting if you look at how paul and john and other people use the old testament uh they they kind of break with a lot of the modern ways that we're taught to interpret the old testament uh they take a lot of uh liberty or license with uh with how they use the Old Testament. And of course, we we want to do how they do it, not how necessarily the Academy tells us to do it, even though the Academy has great things to teach us many times about biblical interpretation. That's one area where, look, we need to honor what the Bible does, the Bible itself. And so if they're able to use these Psalms, we also see no other places where these Psalms off limits to people. We don't see a preclusion in the New Testament regarding the usefulness of Psalms. And so it's not as if, you can't use them now. And so the then becomes, how should we use them? Well, I think one of the big issues is we have to start with, how do we reconcile these psalms with the ethics of Jesus? I mean, Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile with the Roman soldier, so to speak, uh, who demands from us. And so um, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't seem to leave a lot of room for imprecator- imprecatory prayers where we're actually calling upon God to strike down people like the Taliban, uh, people who are going against the Bride of Christ, people who are uh, enemies of God's people, enemies of God's ways. What are we to do with that? And so when I look at the Sermon on the Mount and we've preached through it at at our church, you know, when we understand what the Sermon on the Mount is, it's not simply Jesus uh, taking the law and then you know, creating new laws. He's not rewriting the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. And he's trying to show us the full measure and full weight of the wisdom and ethics of God's law to come to bear on our lives. And so he takes God's law and ups the ante and says, you think you can fulfill this? And then he goes even further and he says, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. And it's a, it's both a combo of a rhetorical device, um, A new law, if you want to put it that way, although I hesitate to put it that way because uh, I don't know that Jesus wants to do that in that place. And then also wisdom. He's teaching us what it looks like to live wisely in the world. And so I don't believe that Jesus negates the usefulness of certain psalms just because uh, some of his ethical teachings seem to be uh, in in tension with them. And so really it gets to a matter of like, why are we so uncomfortable with it? Well, we have to understand what the Psalms are. They're useful for all Christians, all people, to understand what it means to go to God with a full range of human desires and emotions. They're they're useful for us to go to God with everything we feel and everything we want. Does that mean that God will give us everything we feel or everything we want? No, it does mean that we can go to God. And so what these Psalms help us do is go to God with Everything we want with the justice we crave in the world. They're very useful for that purpose. Um, I, I had one friend leave a comment and say, uh, Imprecation or Imprecatory Psalms are, are the kind of the other side of lamentation, that in both mourning and loss, there's also a sense of deliverance and justice upon enemies, whether that's death or, or whatever it is. We want justice. So we trust God to, to delve out that justice appropriately. But we should be honest with God that this doesn't feel right when, when someone does something against me. I don't know how to handle that in the best way, God. But I'm, I'm coming to you because I want justice in the situation. And I want you to protect those I love and those I care about and those in your church. So God, please protect them. That's, a, that's an honest prayer. And so we can use these Psalms to be instructive into how we are to think, process, feel about situations in our life situations in the world this leads us into kind of another thing and it's the issue of pacifism pacifism is kind of the the uh, belief if you will that we shouldn't ever use violence Uh, we shouldn't ever restrain ourselves or we shouldn't ever practice self-defense I remember when I was into Shane Claiborne in college when I long hair, and I was in uh, what I thought was a hippie, uh, but you can't really be too much of a hippie at Texas A&M, and so I was interested in Claiborne reading his kind of uh, theology of uh, non-resistance, and and that makes sense from a kind of elementary perspective when you look at the teachings of Jesus. I mean, he, he didn't defend himself. Uh, he didn't use violence to keep himself from going to the cross. The way he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount seems to imply that there's a degree of uh, passivity or, or, or pacifism in his ethical teachings. But what I think it does is it takes something that Jesus modeled for us, uh, and it, it puts it in conflict with the rest of the Bible when it talks about justice, or it talks about God's people going to war, or it talks about other passages in the New Testament, Revelation when Jesus comes back. Um, and of course, from a pacifist perspective, uh, the 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 ideal is to trust God. So in the end, even if someone comes into my home and kills me, and and I don't take up self defense against them, I trust God will deliver justice. Now that's true, of course. Um, all Christians should and, and would believe that. But then the question becomes: Is that really how He wants us to live? I think I think this kind of passive. And, and it really comes from, uh, from what I view as a kind of a Gnostic approach to the New Testament. And I've talked about Gnosticism on this podcast before. You can actually go back and listen to an episode where I talk about Gnosticism, Internet, and transgenderism, and how when you understand the heresy of Gnosticism, it actually makes sense of those uh, issues in our world. And so Gnosticism being this kind of sin where the material is is bad, And the the world that we live in is bad. The created order is bad. And what really matters, what what actually matters, is the immaterial world, meaning our souls, uh, the world of ideas. um, And what what doesn't matter so much is our flesh, um, things in this world. And you see this in all sorts of spirituality where people don't prize uh, art or architecture or good food or anything like that because those things are seen as corrupting the flesh and and the temptations of this world are too corrupt to be useful or God-glorifying. And so a Gnostic perspective is we shouldn't get involved with the created order. We should try to avoid the created order in order to stay pure, in order to not get our hands dirty. Um, And really it, it comes down to kind of a secret, special knowledge is what the original heresy was about. And Gnosticism was that you would have some kind of knowledge that you had to get or acquire uh, that was above the material world. And what Jesus does is the Son of God comes, Jesus Christ, uh, God takes on flesh, redeems the created order, takes flesh up into heaven in the ascension. And so now we see that the created order, both created good and now redeemed in Christ, um, matters a lot. And that's why Gnosticism is, is a heresy. And so I say it's Gnostic in the sense that pacifism, Is this perspective that, look, I don't necessarily need to involve myself with self-defense, with uh, defending my body, because my body doesn't really matter that much at the end of the day. What really matters is my soul. And so my soul is more important. Uh, This is typical kind of an evangelical perspective is saving souls. And because my soul is more important, then what happens in my body is not a big deal. Then we take Passages like Paul, and we we superimpose our ethical construct on top of him. So when he says for the me li- to live and to die, for to live as Christ and to die as gain, we somehow go see it's better to die. Well, it's not better to die. I mean, yeah, there's a sense in which you get to be with Christ, and so there is a sense of like, yeah, you get to be with God when you die. But that doesn't mean that we should try to die. That doesn't mean that we should end our lives now. There's a point to living besides just dying. And we're to work and make families and raise children and and do good in the world. And so this idea that we should just kind of throw away our bodies, that they're just husks that we're in. um, I think pacifism really latches onto that because it takes the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, you have a very embodied spirituality. You have a people, a specific people, an ethnic group that are God's people at the time. They travel, make war, uh, make babies, uh, they eat food, they grow crops. It's a very agrarian, and uh, it's just a different flavor. But then Jesus doesn't dispose of that. He just broadens it. And so now it's not just one ethnic group. It's Jesus' disciples, people of God's kingdom are in every ethnic group, and, and we're to make disciples of all nations. And so it's not that we are to... Minimize the physical world in the New Testament. Uh, quite the opposite, we're to go out into the world and redeem the physical world. And so, this idea of pacifism connects with Gnosticism, and the fact that if if an intruder breaks into my home, I should defend myself. Like I, my body matters. My my children's lives matter. My wife, her life matters. And the idea that we should just lay down our arms and let whatever happens happen, as if somehow that's trusting God more. Not only that does that uh, super spiritualized things. It, it makes other Christians seem less than, because they've chosen to defend themselves. And so this question really hit home in the issue of uh, Afghanistan, when you've got Christians who you are in their homes, and you've got the Taliban going door to door, uh, seeking to to kill Christians, take their daughter. And so the, the the provocative way to ask this question is: if you're a Christian, how would you advise that Christian in Afghanistan? When that person is coming to their home, the Taliban are coming to your home to to, to execute you and to take your family. What should you do? And a lot of our prayers from our evangelical leaders right now seem to reflect this kind of incipient, uh, I'm sorry, pacifism. Where there's not a lot of prayer for people to stand up and be strong, courageous like Joshua. There's a lot of prayers that people will die well. Now, of course, we should pray that people in the face of martyrdom would be faithful to the end and be strong in the lord but that strength in the lord also looks like self defense it looks like protecting those who are in your charge and so the prayers that i'm seeing offered by many leaders are very just pacifistic they're they're not crying out to uh there's no no intercession to god to work through world leaders and governments to send an army over there to evacuate people there's no interceding before god that he may give those people a strong uh, strong arm to defend their home. They're simply this kind of like, well, they're going to die, so I hope they stay faithful, God. And these are very weak prayers, in my opinion. It's not that they're not effective and they're not good, but they're, they're not really taking the full counsel of God into effect. When we talk about uh, defending oneself, the importance of self-preservation uh, from, a, from a Christian historic perspective, these are, these are important matters, and it's easy for me sitting in kind of uh, thousands of miles away to pontificate on these things, but I've thought about these things a lot with my own family. As, as you have children, you begin to think about what, what would I do in that situation? What if somebody came against my sons? How would I defend my family? And these are natural human questions. And, and I know some people, they, they view these as, oh, we don't want to get involved with these things. That's why we should never have war. That's not, that's not the world we live in. The world is still fallen. And so we really have to wrestle with these questions, not because we're trying to look at other people's pain and try to think ourselves better than them as if like, well, I would do it this way. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to apply the Bible to our own lives as we're awakened to the real tragedy that's unfolding because of a disastrous decision uh, to abandon so many people, 10,000 Americans left behind. Uh, What a horrible decision uh, to leave people behind. And so I think one kind of concluding thought I want to remark on is if we are pacifistic in our kind of spirituality, I don't believe it allows us to go to God with the full range of human experiences and desires. And I'll put it this way. When you watch a Denzel Washington movie, and he's taking revenge on people, and I, you know, I feel conflicted as a Christian on some of those scenes where they're very uh, fairly brutal. But you're watching that, and there's a sense of like you're rooting for him to take justice. And when we read Revelation; we're we're rooting for Jesus. We're hoping in Jesus that when He comes back, He will tread out the wine press, and we're fa- if we are found in Him, we can look forward to that day because. God will make everything right and it will be violent. And so when we watch these things, when we when we have those desires in our heart, when we when think back on 9/11 if you were alive when I, I was in a freshman in high school and I saw those towers fall and I saw my countrymen murdered. And a pacifist has no answer to that other than that's the world and it's kind of damned to hell. And there's nothing to do. A Christian should have more than that. We should have more than just kind of like, well, I guess there's nothing. We should should want justice. We should want and crave that the evil people that made that happen would be brought to justice, and we should pray these psalms for that purpose. We can go to God with a full range of our emotions because we can trust that he can handle what we desire and what we feel, even when it's wrong, even when we when we may be out of bounds. We can take what we feel and we desire and we can go to God and trust that he's going to work it out in the end. And we can be hopeful and we can pray strong prayers for justice in our world um, because he is a just God. And that that leads us into other questions, too, that we're not going to get into right now, which is how, how do we define justice? How do we even begin to define justice? Because our world is crying out for justice a lot. 2020 was like a year where lots of people were crying out for justice, right? Well, if we're not looking to God's Word, and God's Word is not the basis of our cries for justice, then what we're going to see a lot in our world is injustice. And so if we don't take advantage of the imprecatory psalms, what we're going to find ourselves is allured by other versions of justice, whether it's social justice or whatever it may be, we're going to find ourselves allured by other versions of justice that run contrary to how God's Word operates. And so we should look to God's Word to inform our desires, to shape how we pray and how we interact with other people and how we pursue justice in the world. We should not uh, ignore these Psalms. These were given to us by God to instruct us how to feel, how to desire, how to pray, how to act justly in the world. And unfortunately, our world is terribly confused on what it means to be just, a just person, a righteous person, and to desire God's justice. And these Psalms are just ripe for the taking, especially in moments like this. I have one friend uh, chiming in because I do this on Facebook Live, Rustin, saying having people in your charge like children really makes you consider what God-given responsibility looks like in practice. Strict pacifism is an utterly immature view. And I I have to agree with that. I, I can't imagine my own father. If someone broke into our home, just letting them take me like that would be that would be an unloving thing to do. And I think a lot of people because uh, our friends that are passive pacifist, I think a, a lot of people that are pacifist view it as more loving because it seems more kind. And I, I just cannot uh, see how that comports with the Bible. I don't. And if you look at even uh, Jesus, when he goes to the cross, which was a specific for a specific purpose to be the sacrifice of atonement for our sins, which we can't do. Even then, Peter in the garden has a sword. He's armed. He goes and he chops off the guards here, and Jesus says, this isn't how this is going to go right now. Now, I would assume that Peter wasn't just aiming for the ear. I would assume Peter was trying to walk in justice and defend his Savior. And Jesus goes, no, we're not going to do that. He heals the guy, and he goes on to the cross. But before he does that, he also says you should take up swords. If you, you need swords, you need to defend yourself. So, so if we just take kind of a red letter approach to Christianity and cut off the rest of kind of the, the texture of how Jesus trains his disciples, we have no concept for, for what it means when Jesus says, I didn't come to being, bring peace but a sword, or that he tells his disciples to take swords when they go. Like We have no uh, framework for that. And I'm not advocating for the whatever the opposite of pacifism would be. I'm not trying to advocate this kind of warmonger mentality, other than what Paul would say is that we're at war. But there should be an embrace of the complexity of human life. And I think pacifism, just like Gnosticism, flattens humanity, diminishes personhood, and really takes an escapist view of our engagement with our world. Uh, that's kind of all I want to say on that today. There could be more that we talk about with relation to uh, pacifism, Gnosticism, and imprecatory psalms. And the imprecatory psalms, something that I come back to all the time, I have good friends that we pray those uh, regularly. And I think I was primed for it, just loving the kind of music I did growing up, whether it was uh, Dashboard Confessional or Beastie Boys. Uh, those really uh, kind of uh, shape you in certain ways. And I think that was filling a void that I had. In, in Christianity, there was a lack of any shaping in worship music. If you turn on K-Love or any of those stations, you're not going to get this kind of music. You're not going to get cries for justice that are that are aggressive, that are intense and explicit in how we want God to serve justice. You're not going to get that. And so I was searching in other ways, and discovering the the Bible and what the Bible teaches has been so satisfying for my prayer life. And so I hope it encourages you uh, to pray more deeply, more richly, go to God with the full complexity of human experiences. Um, and really, I, just, I, I want it to inspire you to pray strong prayers for God to work in our world. So. I hope this encourages you. If you found this interesting or or uh, encourage you, uh, give us a review, uh, subscribe, leave a rating, share this video, podcast with other people, get a conversation started. Maybe you have uh, some men in your life that you want to talk to about this issue that, that you think they, they need to think more deeply or you just want to think more deeply with them on these topics. Go ahead and share that with them. And until then, we'll see you next time.